We turn to John 3 this morning. The Gospel according to John chapter 3. We read the first 21 verses of the chapter. We take the familiar verse, verse 16, as our text this morning. We read the inspired, infallible word of God. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof. But canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent, in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. We read this far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, we take verse 16 for our text. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the question that we face this morning is a simple one, and yet profound. 
Does God love me? That's a question that we face as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. That question faces all men. Does God love me? The answer to which is life or death. Our text provides us with the answer. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever believeth in him is the object of his eternal, divine, perfect love. The four with which the verse opens, for God so loved the world, tells us this verse is very closely related to the previous. The context and the close connection to the previous verse explains the must that we read in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of God be lifted up. Why must the Son of God be lifted up? He must go the way of the cross, the way of sorrow, because of God's great love for the world. And all the emphasis here in our text falls on that little word, so. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. To know the character, the nature, to know the breadth, the extent of God's love, we don't look at the world, we look at the cross. And there in the cross, the Son of Man was lifted up because of God's great love for the world. We take as our theme God's great love for the world, and we look, first of all, at the fact that that's a particular love. Secondly, it's an awesome expression of that love. He gave. And finally, the blessed hope. God so loved the world. The love of God is here on the foreground in this passage. And a few things we can say about that love. First, God's love is almighty. It is sovereign. It is unchangeable, just as God is almighty, sovereign, and unchangeable. God's love is so great that that love is able to seek and to save everyone who is the object of that love. God's love has no limitations. God's love has no unrealized expectations or unrealized desires. Every single one who is the object of that powerful love is saved. But secondly, God's love is expressed in the text in the fullest sense as that of giving. God's love is shown by that sacrificial gift that he gave of his only begotten son, the gift of a son. God's love becomes so marvelous, so wondrous, that he did not withhold that which was most precious, but he gave that gift. All men deserve to die. We all deserve to go to hell. God gave his own son to stand in the place of some that they might know that victory and that salvation. They will not die, but live. But then thirdly, note that the love of God is connected here with the experience of man. Everyone who is the object of that love knows it and is conscious of it. The one who's the object of that love responds and responds in the manner of believing and being assured in his or her heart that I am free from condemnation and that I have been given this marvelous salvation. Now, what does it mean that God loved the world? 
The cosmos here is used to refer to the created universe, all the creatures in heaven and earth as an organic whole from the viewpoint of their order and their harmony. When man is involved in this sense, the reference is not to every single man, but to mankind in the sense that mankind is organically related to the order that God created and the order of God's marvelous works. We use that analogy of a field, and perhaps you've heard that before. The idea that you look at a field and you say, that's my cornfield, that's my wheat field. Whereas there may be more weeds in that field, there may be more bugs in that field than there are corn or wheat. But nevertheless, we refer to the field as our cornfield, our wheat field. We look at our lawn and we say, that's our lawn. Again, even though the lawn may be full of rocks and may involve more bugs and more weeds than grass, nevertheless, we refer to it in terms of the whole. And so it is with regard to God's reference to the whole of his creation. God refers to the whole of his creation as his redeemed, including the total number of the elect people as they constitute that body of Christ, that whole world. God doesn't just save a number of individuals scattered here and there. He saves a full, complete body, that which is comprised of mankind, according to the wonder of his redemption. So that God looks down at the world and God sees the world from the perspective of those who are the harvest, the fruit, his elect. He saves mankind even though many individuals are lost. He saves the creation even though many of the individual plants and animals go lost. At judgment day when the elect will be separated from the wicked, some will perish, but the world that's found in Christ will be saved and preserved and will constitute the fullness of that glory of the new heaven and the new earth. Wrongly, this verse is used by some to try to teach a supposed love of God for all men head for head. Now, if we just look at the passage in its context, and we might ask the question based on this verse, if God loved the world as in all men, how can it be then that there would be anyone that would experience destruction? Would not every single one of them then be saved? Would they not all be brought into the bliss and the wonder and the joy of heaven? How is it then that the text talks about some perishing? In verse 15, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish. And then again, verse 16, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. It's clear from the text that some perish. Could it be that the gift of God, his only beloved son, would be a gift that's given to all mankind that results then in some perishing? Beloved, to ask that question is to answer it. The text makes clear there are some who perish. And the only conclusion then can be that God's love then must be particular. Now, it hardly seems necessary to have to explain that the word world cannot be understood here to refer to all men. One who knows the Bible knows that the Bible is clear. God's love is clearly expressed only toward those whom he had chose, has chosen. And just to use some references here from the book of John, if we turn to John 10, Jesus makes explicitly clear in this chapter, which is the chapter in which he introduces himself as the good shepherd, that 
He came not for all men. We read, for instance, in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And then he goes on to describe in verse 15, As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. He goes on in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Jesus makes extremely clear. He comes for the sake, not of all men, he comes for the sake of his sheep. They're the objects of his love. They're the objects of the wonder of salvation. And then to back up a bit to John 6. John 6 explains Jesus again in verse 37, making clear who it is for whom he came. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Jesus came to lay his life down for all those whom the Father gave him. That wasn't all men head for head, but it's a certain specific number that the Father gave him. And then going on in verses 40, 44, And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And the Jews then take issue with him. But Jesus in verse 44, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus making clear that he comes not for all men. He comes for those whom the Father gave him. Those whom he identifies as his sheep. Our confessions similarly show clearly that God's love is expressed toward those who are his sheep. We find that, for instance, in the Belgic Confession, Article 16, it's entitled Eternal Election, and it makes clear that Christ came and God sent Jesus to deliver all those who had been elected, those who had been chosen. We have in Article 20 of the Belgic Confession that he showed his love to whom? To us to God's people, God's children. We have in Lord's Day 7, that familiar question, are all men then saved, even as they perished in Adam? And the answer being no, only those who are grafted into him. The wonder of God's sovereign work of grafting is referenced. We have in the Canons of Dort, the first head, Article 2, that this is a particular love. That God is the one who has come in order to save a people whom he has chosen from before the foundations of the world and bring them into the joy and wonder of their salvation. The word world cannot mean then what many would give it because it would involve us in an absurd understanding of this passage. Always when trying to understand scripture, we begin with trying to understand the passage in its context. If God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, then it's evident there are some who perish. It's evident then that God loves a people in whom he works the wonder of salvation. If God so loves all men that then he gives everlasting life only to those who believe in him, that makes no sense. 
Some whom God loves would perish. God so loved the world that he could send the majority of it to hell. What absurdity. The word world is used, we know, in the scriptures in many different ways. John himself uses it in especially two different ways. But we have at least three different ways that we can find. First, there's the reference to the physical creation. Acts 17, 24, God that made the world and all things therein. Simply the fact that the whole of the creation was made by God. Secondly, there's that part of the creation that falls under the curse. So sometimes when the word world is used, it's referring to sin and to the curse of God. John 15, 9, if ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Speaking of the world now in terms of that part of creation that manifests itself in rebellion against God. John 17, 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. And then John, 1 John 2, 15, love not the world. But then there's another way in which the world is used, and that is that part of creation which is the everlasting object of God's love and will be renewed in the new creation. So that we read in 1 John 2, 2, and he is the propitiation, that is the covering for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus then covers, he forgives, not only our sins, but the sins of all his people, wherever they are found throughout the world. From the rest of scripture, comparing scripture to scripture, we easily find that Jesus does not love all men. He does not cover the sins of all men. He covers the sins of his people, his sheep, as we read in John 10. Those whom the Father gave him, John 6. The elect are on the foreground here. And they're included with the whole of the redeemed creation as that which is the object of God's love. Now the object of God's love then is the whole whole organism of God's chosen sheep along with the creation that God is pleased to redeem. God has divided this world into two camps according to his decree of election and reprobation. The world of God's love is particular as defined here in our text. It's the world of those that believe. They're the only ones who will not face hell. And they will not face hell because God sent his son for them in their place and because God chose them from before the foundations of the world. The world are the redeemed humanity, the new creation who appears in perfect harmony and heavenly beauty united to Jesus Christ in the bond of perfectness. For God so loved that world. How much did he love it? We have here an awesome expression of that love that he gave his only begotten son. We ask, what was the extent of God's love? How much did God really love? How much really did God care about this body of the elect? He gave his own son, the most precious gift that he could give. His own son from his bosom, his only begotten, his own natural son. He sent the one who lived with the Father in perfect fellowship, perfect communion, sinless, God sent him away from his bosom and God sent him down into the world to accomplish this 
glorious salvation. And God gave him freely, no strings attached, no conditions, not because he was obligated to do so. God could have allowed the whole human race to perish. But he gave his only begotten son. That love that God had for the world cost him. It cost him his beloved son. And that's the expression of our text. Do you want to know how much God loved you? Do you want to know the wonder of that love? Here's how much. He was willing to sacrifice his own son for the sake of those who rebelled against him. That's the precious gift, beloved, that we celebrate this morning. We eat and drink the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ by faith. And we do so expressing our unity with Christ in the Spirit. And as we ponder our own unworthiness, we think upon who we are and what we've done and what we deserve. We are filled with awe, with the wonder of the love with which our Heavenly Father loved us. And the Holy Spirit impresses the wonder of that love upon us. He so loved us that he gave his own son in our place. As we partake of the Lord's Supper and as we hear the word, the Spirit works in our hearts and the Spirit strengthens our faith and the Spirit works in us that faith by which we embrace and we lay hold upon this wonder. Our spiritual joy and our spiritual fellowship is found in Christ alone. Now God made Jesus' death substitutionary. That's the significance here of the so loved us. He so loved us that Jesus stood in our place and he became our substitute. Therefore, those for whom Jesus died, everyone whom he represented, they're saved. They enjoy everlasting life. There's no punishment for them. There's therefore now no condemnation. His death was atonement. It was payment for sin. He did what no other person could ever have done. As very God and very man, he represented us before the tribunal of God. And he laid his life down as our substitute. Dying in the place of those whom the Father gave him. Dying for definite persons. For those whose names are written in the book of life. And every last one of those individuals freed from sin, delivered from the bondage and punishment of sin, and given to know the victory that's in Jesus Christ. Every last one of them united to Christ, given the gift of faith by which they believe. That's the language of the cross. And beloved, that's the language of love. Jesus had to cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In order that we might know that we will never be forsaken of the Almighty God. They must not perish. That's the burden. These whom God chose from eternity must not perish. In order for them not to perish, Jesus had to come in their place. God says to his beloved son, I have reserved untold joy for them. I've reserved eternal bliss and fellowship with myself to all eternity. Therefore, you need to die. You need to be forsaken of me in order that these 
not perish. So that Christ's suffering and his death and his everlasting desolation and experience of hell was the manifestation, it was the revelation of the wonder of God's love. And beloved, as a result, our task this morning is glorious. Our task is to look upon this love. Our task is to experience it through the preaching of the gospel, through the sacrament, and to embrace the wonder of the love of God toward me, a sinner. Our task, beloved, now and for the rest of our lives and to all eternity, is to gaze upon the amazing love with which the Father loved me and gave his own Son for me. Beloved, there's nothing else that can make your life more full or complete. There's nothing lacking in your life when you have this precious gift, the gift of faith, the gift by which you believe and you lay hold upon Jesus Christ as your Savior. This is the gift that satisfies. Union with Jesus Christ is the only relationship that will survive death. At death, we leave everything behind. All our relationships are left behind. All our possessions are left behind. But there's one that's preserved, and that is Christ's relationship with me. And that's why the child of God on his deathbed can cry out, for me to live as Christ and therefore to die is gain. Now I have Christ. When I die, I experience the fullness of that blessing to all eternity. We have then, beloved, a blessed hope. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. The Father gave the Son to the world so that the world would not perish but believe. The world having disregarded God, having cast God's will to the side, having violated God's commandments, was destituted and was destined to perish everlastingly in hell. Every man, woman, and child, under the curse of God, the soul that sins, that soul must die. God sent his own son to the cross instead. Faced, we could say now, in time, and we know that God ordained this from all eternity, but faced with the alternative to allow the world to perish or to send his own precious beloved son, his only begotten, God sent his son to the cross to accomplish that salvation. And because of this unfathomable love, the son of man then, as John talks here about, was lifted up even as the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up, so that those who were under the plague could look to him and would know the wonder of salvation. God's world had to be saved, and Jesus alone was able to accomplish it. And God gave him then as the expression of that love. God's world must be saved. It is the object of God's love from all eternity. And Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, must be united to that fallen, elect world in order that he might accomplish the wonder of imparting his life to them. Beloved, that's the message of the gospel. That's the glorious message of the church throughout all ages as she preaches the cross and the wonder of the love of God in Jesus Christ. And God commands all men everywhere, repent, 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way of salvation. There's no other one to whom you can turn. This alone is the way of salvation, the wonder of the cross. God gives to his elect the gift of faith. And God gives us the grace by which we respond and we believe. We lay hold upon Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. God joining himself to us by that true and living faith with a bond that cannot be broken. The devil tries, the devil tempts, the devil tries to distract us. But God preserves and God keeps his children. Every last one for whom Jesus died is brought to the knowledge and that wonder of salvation. Jesus perished for them. And now he gives them faith, and they believe. That faith is a gift from God. We're aware of that. We know the wonder and the beauty of Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God gives the gift of faith to his children. And God withholds that gift from all those who are not in Christ. Herein lies the difference between those who are saved and those who perish. The difference is not in us. The difference is according to God's sovereign good pleasure. As many as are ordained to eternal life believe. That's the wonder of Acts 13, verse 48. Beloved, for us, that moves us to great humility. Who am I? What have I done to make myself worthy? Why is it that this God loved me? And beloved, not only all our life long, but to all eternity, that will be our refrain, giving all the glory, all the praise to Jehovah God for the wondrous love by which he lifted me, an undeserving sinner, and gave me to know the wonder of his everlasting life and love. Everyone who believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the assurance of the text. Every last one who believes, without exception, will have everlasting life. And God gives that assurance now, and the day of Jesus Christ will experience the fullness of it to all eternity. Beloved, do you believe? In Jesus Christ. Do you know the wonder of the love of God for you in him? By faith we respond. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And God's children experience the highest blessing possible. Everlasting life is the most wonderful gift. A heavenly hope is given to us. The blessed hope that though we die, yet we shall live. This is the heart of that heavenly joy. To know God is life everlasting, according to John 17, verse 3. To direct all things to God, to find in him our all, and to confess him as the fullness of our joy and our salvation. And beloved, knowing that wonder, we can face trials, we face struggles, we face disappointments here in this life, and we have hardships, but we know that the love of God in Jesus Christ holds, preserves, 
and works in us that persevering faith by which we confess, I am loved of God. And knowing the marvel of the love of God that he gave me, his own son, I lay hold on him. And I know that he is with me now and he will be with me to all eternity. Beloved, do you confess that unspeakable joy? Do you know that wonder that having Jesus Christ, there is nothing lacking. This morning we find our all in him. We are sinners, humbled, sorrowful for our sin. We know the curse. We are shameful because we realize how often we transgress his commandments, how unthankful we are. But beloved, we are the objects of a divine love, a divine love that holds us, that preserves, that keeps us, that preserves that faith and that works in us that everlasting hope. Our value, not found in who and what we are of ourselves, but the one to whom we belong, our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And we come to the table with joy and with thankfulness, confessing that wonder that my beauty, my joy, my hope is found in the great love of my Heavenly Father in giving me a Savior in Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, comfort our hearts, strengthen our faith, and grant that we might know the wonder of thy love, that we might live in the expression of it as we walk by faith, believing in our Lord Jesus Christ and trusting him as the one who saved us from our sins. Amen.